Hello, and welcome to A Murderous Affair. My name is Gabrielle, and today I have some sad news. My computer has officially died on me. It's been on its way out for a while now, so I am reduced to trying to record this on my iPad, which I'm lucky enough to have, so I'm glad I have that. But I don't know how good the editing and all this software that I've downloaded is. So we'll see how it goes, and I'm sorry if the quality suffers a little bit. I'm supposed to be getting a kind of new computer in the mail soon, so hopefully that will arrive and then I don't have to worry about this anymore. But um, yeah, so this is a fun technical difficulty that we're suffering through. But I am still happy to say that there is a Murder's Affair episode this week, so I hope you guys enjoy it. We are talking about Lizzie Halliday, and she was claimed to be the most terrible woman in the world, um, so it's going to be an interesting story, and let's get started. Oh, but first we need to do our resources. See, this is why I miss the editing feature, because I always mess up the order of stuff. Okay, so the resources for this episode are the New York History blog article, um, which has a kind of like short history from the book Question of Sanity by Michael T. Keene. It has a Lizzie Holiday entry in there, and so that was really helpful to read. And then I also read this amazing book by Tori Teller, and it's called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. And it's got not only like Lizzie Halliday, but it's got women from all around the world, some of which we've covered on this podcast and some that I've never heard of that I will probably cover in the future. But it's an amazing book. If you haven't read it and reading about history and especially women in history is your thing, I would definitely recommend it. So without further ado, let's get started. Elizabeth Lizzie McNally was born in County Antrim, Ireland, in 1860. Her parents took her along with their other nine children to live on the East Coast when she was still a young child. As Lizzie got older, she began to show more and more of a temper. Her brother John said that, quote, she was inclined to so much quarreling that the family all disowned her for years. She could not stay in a place at any time when working out on account of her violent temper. There are multiple accounts of her attacking family members like her father and her sister when she was upset at them, and she would also do, ugh, see, editing would be nice right now. Um, she would also show to be just as passionate in her grief. When her father died, she fell on his grave screaming and clawing at the dirt. Now, Lizzie was described as being, quote, naturally ugly, which I find a delightful turn of phrase. She had pale Irish skin and muscular limbs. She was described as being very, very strong for her short size and always on the hunt for money. She never really had a job, and a lot of employers complained of her constant mood swings as well as her weird behavior. So, for example, once when there was a boy she was working with who teased her, she got angry and threw a knife at him. Another time, there was a little girl who was annoying, and she spit in her face. Sorry, guys. I'm apparently getting text messages this morning. Um, really just an all-around classy person here. She also had an extensive history in and out of courtrooms. She would make unfounded claims against employers she didn't like or customers who annoyed her 
or basically anyone who she thought she could make claims against and take them to court. She was married to a man named Charles Hopkins, Charles Hopkins, who went by the name of Ketspool. This was her first marriage, and it lasted three years. They had one son together, and then Ketspool died of what was then identified as typhoid fever, but has since been called into question as to whether or not it was actually a natural death. Over the next few years, Elizabeth married four more times. Her second husband, Artemis Brewster, was described as a broke-down veteran from Greenwich Village in Washington County, and he died within their first year together from unknown causes. Apparently, he was a victim of of Lizzie's constant beatings and hair pulling. She had a third husband, who was George Smith, and actually was a friend of Artemis Brewster. And despite seeing the abuse that Brewster went through, he went and married Lizzie anyway, and she tried to kill him by poisoning his tea. So that marriage didn't last very long once he found out about that. She was married to another man who really isn't named, and he is described as being young and handsome. But when she found out that he had beat his first wife to death, she fled with her son to Philadelphia. Um, She ended up opening a store there, but she only had it open long enough for the insurance to go through before she burned it down for the insurance money. Now, when she did this, she also destroyed a bunch of other houses in the neighborhood. So, she found herself sentenced to two years in the Eastern Penitentiary and then got herself transferred to the asylum there. When she got out, she had absolutely no idea where her son was. Later on in an interview, she told a reporter, My boy is about 12 years old, and I've never been able to see him since. After leaving the asylum, Lizzie made her way to New York, where she began working for Paul Halliday, doing domestic work. Now, Paul had been married before and had six kids from a previous marriage, one of whom was severely handicapped. Lizzie told him that she had just gotten to the country from Ireland, and they ended up having a lot in common. So the two of them ended up getting married, and their relationship was described by one of Halliday's older children as being one of, quote, peculiar influence. In 1891, Halliday returned home to find that his house was a smoldering heap of rubble. Lizzie was found standing next to the ruins, and she was the one who informed him that his handicapped son had died in the fire, and that he had died while helping her get out of the house. Really, it was like a touching story, except for the fact that it was completely made up. So, you see, Halliday's house was burned down, but the door leading to his son's room was still recognizable which led to the horrific realization that Halliday's son had actually died because his room had been locked from the outside and he hadn't been able to escape. Then the key to his room was found to be on Lizzie's person. So, you would think that at this point, Halliday would have realized what a terrible person his new wife was and at the very least file for divorce or separation or however it worked back then. But no, 
Not only did she somehow escape any criminal charges for this crime, she also continued her marriage with Halliday. So, soon after burning down his house and causing and killing his son, um, she burned down his barn and a mill that he owned, and her excuse was that he needed a new one of each anyway. Then, she ran off with a horse thief, but was soon caught and this time thrown in jail for the arson and, I'm assuming, attempted horse thievery considering the fact that she ran off with a horse thief. It's not really clarified, but it's kind of insinuated that that also happened. See, and then here comes something that soon becomes part of the Lizzie Halliday mystery. As soon as she got to the jail, she began screaming and tearing out her hair. And this behavior got her transferred to the Metewan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. So, this is the second time that her behavior had gotten her transferred from a prison to an asylum. Um, granted, back in those days, I'm not really sure if either really had a huge difference. But it brings up the question that a lot of people are still wondering to this day. Could Lizzie Halliday be considered, quote, criminally insane? Or was it all an act to try and get away with her crimes? Which is very common. Uh, a lot of people commit these atrocious crimes and then try and claim reason of insanity um, as, like, an excuse for why they did what they did. But that isn't, like, a conceivable way to excuse these horrific acts because even like if you are then you don't act insane I guess is what I'm trying to say and what it seems like is like Lizzie was putting on a show of insanity um, we'll talk more about this later but I just want to make a quick uh, little side note that it's interesting that the minute that she started getting caught for these crimes is when she would kind of start of acting out in this way and screaming and pulling her hair. And um, it was only ever described as when she was in prison or when she was being questioned by police and other authority figures that her question of sanity was brought up. Anyway, let's get back to Lizzie and Halliday's epic fail of a marriage. So after a year, Lizzie was released from asylum because the doctors declared that she was cured. She came back to Holiday, and they managed to make it through another year of marriage before, suddenly, Paul Holiday disappeared. So, when people asked where her husband was, Lizzie told neighbors and everyone that he was away on business, but nobody really believed her. Now, we're going to sidestep for a minute and talk about a sweet, harmless family which is Tori Teller's words, not mine, called the McQuillans. The McQuillan family was made up 74-year-old Tom, his wife Margaret, and their 19-year-old daughter Sarah, who, and they all lived relatively close to the Halliday farm. One day, this woman came up and introduced herself as Mrs. Smith. She was very friendly and said that she was looking for a housekeeper. Margaret took her up on this offer and soon went away with this Miss Smith. A few days later, Miss Smith came back to the McQuillan family hysterical. She said that Margaret had injured herself and was asking to see her daughter. Tom wanted to go and see his injured wife, but for some reason, Miss Smith insisted that it was only Sarah that Margaret was asking for. 
So, Sarah went off with Mrs. Smith to take care of her injured mother. Two days passed with no word from either of these women, and Tom got suspicious. So he started asking around town to see if anyone knew where he could find this Mrs. Smith. Only to find out that nobody knew of this woman, and nobody had ever even heard of or seen a woman matching this description. As you've probably guessed, this mysterious Miss Smith was none other than our very own Lizzie Halliday, and unfortunately, she was the last to see Margaret and Sarah alive. While this was all happening, one of Paul Holliday's sons had started really worrying about his father, because it wasn't like him at all to disappear with no word for such a long time. He'd been watching Lizzie, and eventually was able to get a search warrant from the police after witnessing some bizarre behavior around the house. The police came to search the house with a warrant, and it's said that they came just as Lizzie was cleaning fresh blood from the carpet. And listen, I don't know how true that is, but it was in the book that I read, so I'm adding it because I think the irony of the policeman showing up with a warrant to search your house as you are cleaning fresh blood from the carpet is just too irresistible. So Lizzie's pissed, of course. She goes after the head police detective with a floorboard, once again, more on that later, and hits him with it. But the police continued their search, and in the barn they found the bodies of two women. These women had their hands and feet bound behind them and multiple injuries from being shot by a gun. And if you haven't guessed, this, these were the bodies of Margaret and Sarah. Lizzie, when she was told, apparently didn't have the reaction that police expected. She instead insisted that she'd had no idea how the women had ended up there or what could have happened even though there'd literally been blood that she'd been seen cleaning from her floorboards, supposedly. So she was taken in as a suspect. Obviously a really guilty looking one, especially since Tom was a witness who was able to identify that yes, this was the woman who had come to his house and the woman his wife and daughter had left with. So we're going to go back to those floorboards. After the police had discovered the bodies of the two women, they kind of just wrapped up their investigation. But Paul Holliday's son wanted to check the house for himself and see if there was any clues about his missing father. So, along with a friend, the two men went back to the house, and the son immediately noticed that something looked different about the kitchen floorboards. He and his friend started prying up, some of the loose ones, and they found, buried underneath the floorboards of the kitchen, the body of his father, Paul Holliday. He'd been beaten and shot to death. And the evidence doesn't really get any more damning than finding a body telltale heart style in your kitchen. And of course, during this time, the story spread everywhere. Every state was obsessed with the story. But one of the things that kept the public so enamored with the story of Lizzie Halliday was her behavior. Journalists and members of the public would flock to the jailhouse to listen to Lizzie screaming in her cell. And while in the cell, she would fall into what would be described as fits, 
where she would hysterically scream and cry, talk to the walls and invisible people, harm herself by pulling out her hair and smashing her head against the walls, and then she would just sit in her own filth for hours at a time. Which obviously made people wonder, was Lily Halliday quote-unquote insane? The newspapers at the time... The newspapers at the time, well, they just went back and forth. As well as various psychiatrists who were called in to evaluate her. Because, you see, her moments of insanity were always time to be in front of people. And when she thought she was alone, she was described as being quiet and contemplative. Now, Lizzie was originally sentenced to execution in the electric chair. But Governor Flowers gave her instead an incarceration for life in the Matewan prison for the criminally insane after a group of psychiatrists declared that she was in fact, quote-unquote, insane, even though this was very much a controversial diagnosis at the time. While she was there, um, she continued to kind of exhibit this dangerous behavior, and a lot of the inmates and the uh, nurses there just left her alone. But in 1897, she was offended by one of the attendants there, so... Together with a second inmate, Jane Shannon, they locked the attendant in a bathroom, then proceeded to attack her. Shannon knocked the attendant to the ground and jumped on top of her, while Halliday stuffed a towel in her mouth, and they both began to beat her. Lizzie was pulling out her hair and scratching her face as hard as she could, and when uh, everyone realized what had happened and the attendant was rescued... She was found unconscious, but she did survive with no lingering injuries, and both of these women who attacked her, Lizzie and Jane, were put in isolation. After this, Lizzie's behavior kind of stabled out. Um, There was a nurse who showed a lot of kindness to Lizzie, and her name was Miss Nellie Wicks. She was 24 years old. And she had recently been promoted to be the head of the women's unit. Um, And while she was there, she really became kind of the number one person to work with Lizzie. She gave her certain privileges within the group. And their relationship was described as being very maternal. Um, And Lizzie also really seemed to enjoy being around this nurse, Miss Wicks. But because of Miss Wick's talents and her just general empathy and her ability to connect with the patients, she was offered the uh, position to continue her medical studies and become a medical nurse, which meant that she would be leaving the institution. And reportedly, she told the group and Lizzie begged her not to leave. But... Obviously, Miss Wicks was going to choose the best for her, and after making herself very, very uh, resolute over this fact to Lizzie, Lizzie began making verbal threats, saying that she would kill her rather than see her leave. 
But because Lizzie's behavior had been so great for the past six years, they were these threats were ignored. So, on her final day at this institution at eight in the morning, Miss Wicks went into the bathroom. Lizzie got behind her and knocked her to the floor. And before she could react, Lizzie had taken her keys and locked the door from the inside. She then turned to this nurse that she had claimed to love and stabbed Miss and stabbed Miss Wicks over 200 times in the face and the head. See, she'd been allowed these scissors for sewing by Miss Wicks, which was part of her special privileges. Um, Mrs. Wicks screaming, obviously, alerted everyone else who was, were eventually able to break down the door and save, try and save her. But, unfortunately, it was too late, and she died less than an hour later. Now, reportedly, while being taken to a cell in solitary confinement, Lizzie said, quote, she won't leave me now. On June 28th, 1918, while still incarcerated, Lizzie Halliday died when she was 58 years old. She was buried in an unmarked grave that has since been kind of lost to time. And the quote-unquote worst woman in the world has since faded mostly from memory. And that is the story of Lizzie Halliday, the quote Worst woman in the world. I think it's really interesting because this is something that Tori, uh, oh gosh, hold on. Oh God, I can't edit this out. Okay, Tori Teller um, says in her book was that compared to other notable women serial killers of the time, Lizzie Halliday was treated as like this monstrous figure. And she kind of draws attention to the fact that because Lizzie was described as being quote-unquote naturally ugly. There wasn't really anything that could be used in her looks or her behavior to justify sort of the killings, as which tended to happen with female killers who were considered to be more beautiful. So it just opens up a really interesting dialogue to how because Lizzie was perceived as this ugly and terrible person her crimes seemed so much more horrific to the general public whether when uh other women who were uh, considered to be beautiful like a countess elizabeth bathory when they were committed of crimes that were just equally as awful or worse um, they somehow seemed more dismissive because of the fact that these women were beautiful um so it's just really interesting. I find Lizzie Halliday's story interesting also because um, the way that she killed people was described as being very masculine. You know, um, a lot of other female murderers tend to poison or stuff like they don't or supposedly they aren't as aggressive or whatever that could possibly mean when it comes to their kills. But Lizzie Halliday, quote unquote, killed like a man by beating and strangling and shooting people to death and so that was thought as being very very different from the time period and uh, it just makes it a really interesting commentary if you guys haven't read the lady killers book by tori teller i definitely recommend it she did an amazing job researching all these women and just really going into depth of each of their crimes and honestly i just really really recommend it but 
That is the story of Lizzie Halliday. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Once again, I'm sorry for the fact that it's kind of unedited. I am going to hopefully be getting a computer that actually works sometime soon so that I have no more delays and can actually do, you know, the podcast stuff I want to do. Um, but if you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. And if you'd like to hear from more from me, you could follow me on social media on Twitter, Instagram, or Tumblr at Frumius Reads. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can find it wherever podcasts are available. Um, or you can go to frumiusreads.com forward slash a dash murderous dash affair, where all the episodes are uploaded and you can keep up to date there. But that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening and stay spooky, friends. I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>